Natalie Pinkham has been presenting F1 on Sky Sports for over a decade. In 2021, she became the first woman to commentate on a Formula One session on British television when she led the Sky commentary from Bahrain at the Grand Prix there. In 2022, she created Flackstock, which was a festival in honor of her late friend Caroline Flack, in order to celebrate her life and, of course, raise awareness of mental health issues. Um, so the funniest thing happened on Friday. I went to go and watch Bellatrix, um, who's the same age as your Willow, at a hockey match. First hockey match, right, she's ever played. And it just took Stop me it. straight back. It was like a wave and it came straight back to me. And literally, before I, before I could stop myself, I found myself on the sidelines, not being one of those really pushy tiger mums, but taking myself right back to that moment when I was saying, sticks down, circle it, Queenswood, which is what we invariably had to do every Wednesday and Saturday. And it took me right back there. And I know you're going to lie about our ages and say that it was only 10 years ago because you're really good at doing that. The truth is I'm not because you, you've basically ruined me because <laughs> everyone knows we're born just a few days apart and you've never once lied about your age, which screws me over big time. The Daily <laughs> Mail and Wikipedia it. know the truth. You got away with it for about five years and then the penny yeah, but started but I was only about 30 at the time. It, it matters now, <laughs> but you've gone and blown my cover. Thanks for that. But that was. I hope Bellatrix so is was, a bit safer with a hockey stick than you were. Bloody oh, hell. That's like 30 you were savage. years ago. But that's 30 years ago, Stop right? It. So oh think about God. what we've. I was never then I was thinking. So then we're speaking this week, and I was thinking, so what have we done since then? Amazingly, we both got through school and university without a major catastrophe taking place to either of us. We've then got ourselves through that. We managed somehow to persuade people to employ us, which has happened. We've both worked in Formula One together, which is pretty, that is a, that's got to be a real rarity, right? That two boarding school girls from the age of 11 who've known each other end up working in the F1 paddock together years later. Um, we both somehow persuaded people to marry us and we've also had a couple of children. <laughs> So all of that has happened since that first moment where we did sticks down, circle at Queenswood. Do you know what? I I was thinking about our lives and actually there've been a lot of parallels. I still can't believe that we had daughters born very close together, just as we were. And I feel like our lives have followed a a similar path, Um, you know, to end up working in Formula One together, having got into our careers in very different ways, I think is, you know, it's extraordinary. And I remember being told, yeah, you, you've got a job working with Sky F1. Oh, yeah, and by the way, Georgie Thompson's on the team. I mean, I, you know, it just blew me away. To travel the world with your best mate was just wicked, wasn't it? It was so unfortunate for everybody else on our team, though, wasn't it? Because it was it was just so... <laughs> it was just so we much fun very annoying. Us. Yeah, exactly. We probably yeah. were really. Do you know I mean, what though? Do you know yeah. what, Georgie? Again, I was thinking. I was sort of reminiscing last night, thinking about it, and uh, without getting too serious for a moment. But I, I think that the world of sports presentation, well, any kind of presentation, is fickle. It's kind of there are highs and lows. There's uh, there's a lot of potential obstacles along the way. And I think invariably women get pitted against each other. And I'll never forget till the day I die, a producer saying to another producer in the same car as you and I, so who do you think is better, Georgie or Nat? 
And before the other producer had the chance to reply, you intervened and you said, don't even try. Don't even think about pitting me against Nat because we've got each other's backs here. And 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 I think it's a, a patriarchal construct. I think it's a construct created out of a need to control maybe women in the industry. I think it's getting better. I don't think it's such a problem anymore. Um, but too many women sort of fall prey to that. They fall into the trap that is, oh, I must compete against the other women around me. And actually the reality was so, so different. You have always had my back. You've always given me great advice. You've always been a friend to go to. Um, and I've never felt that I'm directly competing with you. I've just felt lifted by you, supported by you. And I never forget that moment. And I'll always remember when you first told me that you were going to leave Sky F1, broke my heart because <laughs> you were only there for a year. I was like, what? <laughs> this can't be over. But you took me to one side. You said, I'm not going to tell anyone else yet, but I'm telling you now because I want to give you the chance to go to our bosses and say, well, look, let's just merge my role with Georgie's. Give me, you know, give me that opportunity. But you were the one that gave me that opportunity to do that in the first place. So thank you forever. And I love you for that forever. But it is crazy that you're absolutely right. That is a real problem that female broadcasters suffer, especially for some reason in this in the sports world. There is this sort of thing that is created by, you know, I think predominantly the male bosses because they, they are mostly male in that industry, um, that they do want to create sometimes um, this, this um, just real division between the females. Um, and actually the irony is, is that most of the females have, have had private conversations amongst each other and said, let's never let that happen. Let's not let get that. Let's not allow that 100%. to come between us because you just – you just don't want to be living that life. It's just really uncomfortable and really miserable. And, and no one wants to be thinking about, you know, doing the best job they possibly can with that on their back. It's just not worth it, is it? Well, I, I mean, I've said this to other girls like coming through now because I definitely feel a sense of responsibility. You know, now I'm in my 40s. Oh, my God, I admitted it. And and thinking about what I do next with my career, I talk to like 20-year-old girls and I say, look, don't fall for this idea that you are in direct competition with other women. You're in competition with yourself. There's room for all of us. It just should. It's a whole kind of rising tide lifts all ships. Just be better. Be the best you can be. Yeah. Raise your game, but don't get bitchy. And I think actually Queenswood, our school, taught us that. I never felt it was a bitchy school. I felt like no. it was competitive, but the competition was with yourself. Just improve yourself, push yourself. and. And actually act as a sisterhood because, my God, the industry is tough enough without, you know, if you, if you don't have support of your female colleagues. So just rally around. And I think we've been really lucky in that. We're good mates with Kirsty Gallagher as well, Sarah Jane Mee, uh, Gabby Logan, you know, to a slightly lesser extent. She was always the trailblazer, though, wasn't she? Kind of yeah, leading she was. the way. Yeah. Um, and we always looked up to her. But I never once... Um, felt that kind of, I don't know, that jarring feeling that other girls want on your side. And I say it over and over again, just don't fall for that. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely not something that the girls that work in sport want to be, um, 
want to be affected by in any which way. Like you say, it's hard enough anyway. Do you find sometimes that because you're a, I'm going to say girl, I mean woman, because we're women in that world, um, do you ever feel the need to just have to be better, have to be, have to try harder, have to know more? I think that was one of the things that I really found throughout my broadcasting career was that bit where if you got it wrong, if you ever got it wrong, everyone would come down on you like a ton of bricks mm. in a way that they didn't always do for your male counterparts. And I just don't think we were 100%. so easily forgiven for a mistake. And then you step back from that and you actually think, well, what is it that the fan wants to actually hear or know? And, and don't mm. be the person that's trying to impart all the knowledge. Be the person that's trying to get the information from the person that has all the knowledge, right? So whoever you're interviewing. And I always saw us as a as a way of getting information out of people, not the information giver in, in that sense. Is that, is that what, how, how you've seen it as well? The fact that, you know, you find that you sort of question yourself about how, how can I prove myself even more than a male counterpart? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I remember having this chat with Gabby Logan uh, as well, because uh, we did a podcast together a few years ago and she said, look, you, you feel as if you have to load your questions with answers to prove yeah. your worth and justify your position. And I guarantee our male colleagues don't feel the same way because what on earth makes a male presenter any more credible or uh, reliable in that context of asking those questions. You know, Simon Lazenby, for example, Ted Kravitz, David Croft, they've never driven a Formula One car, yet people don't question their knowledge. And yet, for whatever reason, and this isn't to blame my colleagues, because they are always incredibly supportive. They're amazing. But maybe that is something that I've imposed upon myself. Perhaps I just grew up in that patriarchal society that told me that I didn't really deserve to be there. And that's mm. where this imposter syndrome comes from. And the problem with imposter syndrome is people tell you or ask you all the time, oh, do you ever get imposter syndrome? You think, I don't know, maybe I should, maybe I do. And then it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So certainly at the beginning of my career, I would try to like learn as much as I can. I mean, I still do. I try to read everything. And again, that's the advice I'd always give to a young woman or indeed man coming through into the sport is to read everything as much as you can, just absorb it like a little sponge. But don't feel the need to laden your question with those stats. You know, you don't, if Lewis Hamilton has a, a fuel flow gauge issue on lap 48, you don't compare it to something that happened, you know, three years ago in his career at lap 12 of a different yeah. race. You just go, you've had past experience of this. Tell us about it, whatever. But you're absolutely right. We are the conduit. And really what you've got to remind yourself is they're not there to listen to you. They're there to listen to their sporting heroes. And you're just acting as a sort of mechanism for them to do that. I think one of the things that people have as a real misconception about Formula One is how full on cutthroat it is as a, as a, as a place in which to work. My experience of it, and I know your experience of it is similar, and we can talk a bit about this, is that actually it's just one big massive family. And it's really, really supportive, isn't it? It's, it's almost codependent. It is this sort of traveling mass that goes, it's a traveling circus, right? We all sort of board a plane at Heathrow or Gatwick and go on this journey for sort of four days or so to a foreign place almost don't see that place because it literally is get out of the airport get into the hotel get to the track do the job do the show come home again um it, it's just sort of describe a little bit about what that's like um 
and now you don't have me by your side and you haven't done for a number of years. How are you still doing it? It's completely exhausting. It totally knackered me out after a year. And I thought I can't see this being my forever gig. How, How do you keep doing it? It's so relentless. Um, well, I think it energizes you as much as it exhausts you. And so Mm. you go away and physically you do feel knackered, but I think one of the great joys of Formula One is that it's a sport that never sits still. So you are always learning. There's always something new to know. And as a result, it pushes you in ways that I think I certainly enjoy to be stretched. Um, going back to your point about the sense of community, I mean, I really, really do feel that and there's there's fans everywhere around the world who you will never get to meet but somehow it feels like a giant security blanket you were my little security blanket for the first year <laughs> and now I've got this giant one but it, it's, it's so interesting because we did something recently on online hate um we'll come on to that but um it's so interesting people ask me whether I'd ever been trolled and Bar the odd sort of heinous exception, no, because actually even when there's been difficult moments over the last 12 years, I have felt this sense of community. Mm. You know, you can't see it, but you can feel it somehow. And I think that is born out of the fact that we all make these lifestyle choices to work in the sport. And it does require a lot of sacrifice in terms of your partner and your kids. Everybody's got to be all in to make it work. And because of that, there's just a mutual appreciation and understanding. When you get on that plane at Heathrow, yeah. as you say, you look each other in the eye and you go, okay, it's interesting because we're doing something exciting um, and different. And it is, it's, it, it, well, there's there's two schools of thought. There's one that you, th- you think, well, we're not changing lives. We're not saving lives. We're just creating entertainment. But the other bit that I love about F1 that I don't think you get from any other sport is that they are trailblazers in terms of technology and development. And actually, a lot of the technology that you see in Formula One, well, that you see, you then get to see in the real world. And so baby heart rate monitors that are being used in pediatric units up and down the country started in Formula One. You saw at the beginning of the pandemic, the way Formula One rallied and were able to produce ventilators for all the hospitals. Like That makes Mm -hmm. me immensely proud. I mean, I have nothing to do with the production of that, but just to be able to be on the inside and see that working is phenomenal. And the other thing I always get asked is whether it is alienating in the sense that it is very male. um, It is very uh, white, um, and it is seen as elitist. Now, this is certainly changing since Liberty took over. They've made great strides, but the person that we have to give all the credit to is Lewis Hamilton because he yeah. has just been phenomenal, phenomenal trailblazer um, in terms of making it feel much more accessible, um, not just for people of different ethnicity, but different sexual orientation, certainly different gender. And he is pushing and pushing and pushing and using the fact that he can dominate the front and back pages using his voice in such a positive way. So it does feel much more inclusive now. So when I first started, I remember um, five live days before you even joined, looking around, not seeing any other girls. And so I can only imagine what it was like for Lewis not see any other black men in the sport. And he must must have felt incredibly marginalised. And um, that has definitely changed because I think the sport is a meritocracy and they don't care where you've come from. They care where you're going. They care about your work ethic. They care how passionate and determined you are. So it is ruthless um, and hugely competitive, but it is a meritocracy. So if you prove that you're, that you're all in, then um, you'll be accepted and, and you'll flourish. 
You mentioned about the sacrifices. It's true of any sport that's this demanding on your time, isn't it? And takes you away from home and makes you travel. Um, in so many ways, it's such a privilege, but it's also bloody hard work. When you're get on, getting on that flight and you're, you're leaving behind your littlies and, and Wiggy as well, I mean, is there a moment where you go, oh, at least I'm going to get a good night's sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you know me, I don't sleep at the best of times. Bloody sleepwalk when I'm in a hotel room. I go, oh my God, I've got a bed, for, I've got a double bed all to myself. And I have to have what, was the worst one? what was the worst one you me. did at school? What was the worst one you did at school? I was trying to remember the other well, day. I remember I'm sure going, you... yeah. Well, you were, in, you were in Clapham South at the time and I was up in, um, oh my God, I remember you were... No, you were in South and I was in Waller. You were in South and I was in Waller. You were in Waller. You were in Waller. Sorry. I was in South. Yeah, well done. Oh, my God. And um, I went down the dormitory. Basically, the whole of South were late for breakfast. (laughs) And it's because I had gone to the – because do you remember we used to have to put our school uniform at the end of our bed? Yeah. folded up really, really neatly. And then you had to put your uniform on and you had to queue down the corridor and then you were released (laughs) to go and get your breakfast. And the whole of (laughs) – Clapham South were late for uh, breakfast and everyone was kind of coming out of the dormitories going, where's our uniform? And I suddenly had this like realisation moment. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I said to um, our head of dorm, I, I, I know where the uniforms are. And she was like, what do you mean? I went, I gathered them up in my sleep. I thought I was helping. I had gone to all the dorms and picked up uniforms. And I, I said, just go down to the last bathroom on the left. And sure enough, so there was bad. a giant pile of uniforms in the bath. So they had to go through them all and look for the labels and then give them back to all of the water nutter. <laughs> that was just one of like many. The, the amount of times you slept walked was just insane, wasn't it? It was just, know, uh, did you I ever know. grow out of it? Did it ever just pass by in the end? No. You no. need to ask Wiggy. He is like... Oh, it's no, I have t- asked I mean, Wiggy. Honestly, there's some darkness there. There's some darkness guy. there with a couple of those poor stories guy. of how you sleepwalk. Yeah. You ju- it just, gets really it's just crazy, go, isn't it? Why are you shouting at me? Yeah. I, he'll shout at me. And I go, why are you shouting at me? It's not my fault. He goes, you don't live with it. I said, well, I do. Yeah. He goes, no, no, no. When I'm in the deepest sleep and you yell out... I literally think someone's broken into the house and I just, he like jumps out of bed in his pants, ready to fight. <laughs> what an image. Have you ever done it in Formula One? Oh my God, so many times. So many times. I mean, I've evacuated hotel rooms. Yeah, hotels. <laughs> I remember going from my hotel room in Austin, I rang downstairs and I told the woman that there was a flood and, you know, there was a some sort of water leak and it was flooding the hotel. And so she was like, ma'am, have you been drinking? And I said, absolutely not. I'm telling you the truth. You need to get everyone out. So she starts evacuating the hotel. Then I wake up and go, oh, God, guys, I'm really sorry. Come back in. Come back in. It is honestly, it's ridiculous. I remember one time. I remember one time, though, when we were on a plane somewhere or another. I can't remember where we were going to. um, and, And you actually said you felt. It was an opportunity. This is before kids, so it's a completely different thing. Yeah. But um, it was, it, I mean, you have always had a problem with your sleeping, for sure you have. Um, but you said that you found it so much easier to sleep on a plane with all of us around you because then you had people yeah. around you. And that security blanket thing that you were talking about as the bigger yeah. picture of the F1 thing, I mean, that goes down to the tiniest little thing, isn't it? Which is actually you being able to sleep on a plane and actually getting sleep because you feel secure because everyone's around yeah. you. 
It's extraordinary, isn't it? There, there was definitely a sense of safety knowing that other people are awake as well. Like I remember sleeping, having to go to hospital and I remember sleeping the best night ever in hospital because I knew doctors, nurses were around. So a psychologist would probably have a field day with that and go, oh, why sure. let's dig down into that. But for some reason, I need to feel safe and I don't like to feel like I'm the only one awake in the world. Yeah, it's weird. What about the traveling bit of it, though? Because it is such a, a, a yeah. big ask. I mean, the, the, how many races now a year and how many are you doing? How many weeks away are you away well, a year, so, do you think? So it's uh, so we're looking at 24 races next year, which will be like a world That's record. Insane. And I do about half. And so I do probably uh, around eight instead of Simon. So eight of them as the main anchor, which is which is great because I feel like my career needs that. I need to be pushed and um, it really keeps you on your toes. You have to work much harder. <laughs> Respect lasers so much more now. <laughs> <He's actually laughs> Who thought you'd ever say that? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then, yeah, so I probably do about half, but I definitely, going back to the thing about leaving the kids, God, I just... I get that sicky, anxious feeling in my mm. stomach probably about four or five days out. And uh, I know Willow really feels it. Like, Wilf is much more like his dad. He doesn't show emotions as much, but I'm sure he feels it. Um, but as long as I bring him some sort of tap back from the country, he's normally pretty happy. Willow, on the other hand, absolutely hates it. And she she's so sweet. I mean, she she starts talking. She's already talking about me going to Mexico Um and she's dreading it. She said, Mom, I just hate it. She, she's a real home girl and she loves Aww. it to be the four of us in the house. She just loves that. Wiggy's away at the moment with work. So we're like passing ships. We're like, oh, it's a perfect marriage. We don't, we never <laughs> see each other. But I, I do, I do find it really hard to leave the kids. And then when I get there, I just try to keep my head down and work hard because obviously working hard, the time goes quicker. But I don't want to rush it either because it is a privilege to work in the sport. And you you get there and you it feels really foreign to be in a random hotel bed. It was that horrible feeling where you wake up and you go, right, where am I? Where am I? And it takes you mm -hmm. like three or four minutes, sometimes 10. You go, shit. Oh, yes, I know where I am. Bahrain or wherever it is. Um, but, it, you know, FaceTime, thank God for FaceTime. That's definitely changed a lot. But um, I, I think the mum guilt uh, is just always with me. And you never really feel like you're doing a good enough job for anyone. You know, am I am I a good enough mum? Am I a good enough broadcaster? You're always questioning yourself. Um, you feel like you're dropping plates the whole time, don't you? Uh, I mean, like only tomorrow, Willow's playing in her first netball match. And she's like, well, you're coming, aren't you? And I was like, oh, my God. And it's like this been this monumental effort to to move things around because she wants to look yeah. from the court side and see me standing there. I mean, that's such a crucial part of growing up, isn't it? Knowing you've got the support of your parents. So Yeah, and we remember um, that. If, you if we go back to our school days, like having them on the sidelines cheering you on in whichever, you know, match you're taking part in matters massively, doesn't it? You remember the kids that didn't have it. And you feel terrible. You remember thinking, oh, that's, that's awful. I wouldn't want to be in that position. See, and then the fact that you've sort of made a choice not to be there by being away with work as well somehow compounds the misery, doesn't it? It's really, I think though, you never get over this mum guilt piece. I mean, I've gone from doing what you do and traveling all over the place and, and, and not being 
present in that regard um, to then being present, but then having to sort of go away with Ben and do bits and pieces with him and bits and pieces with my own work and, and not being around the kids 24-7. I always feel because he's away so much, probably I feel a bit like Wiggy. You know, you've got to be the anchor. You've got to be there as much as you possibly can mm. be so that always they have one of you. Um, and it does create these... I don't know if you guys have it. We definitely have it. You do have these moments of complete resentment towards the other person for being able to go and do that and then sort of come back into the party. And then they want this sort of big fandango when they come home and you feel like, well, no, you know, this is, I'm keeping it all together and this is our routine. And you've just rocked it by coming home and throwing everything up in the air. And you've got to kind of find that equilibrium between yourselves as a relationship, but also the the, the unit that is the family unit, haven't you? And it mm. is a constant work in progress. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things we're probably all guilty of, I know I am, is, uh, you know, instinctively, I just put the kids before everything in my heart, in my yeah. mind. Before, I put yeah. them before Wiggy. And I know he knows that. And the thing is, what I've got to remember is I need to nurture him and our marriage yeah. because we are the foundation on which it's built. So yeah. I do have to give him time, not assume that he'll always be OK, because he's such an alpha male that he'll never admit when he's not OK. But I have to sort of take time out and remember that our marriage has to stay strong for the sake of our children. Um, and if you neglect it, suddenly you look back and you realise how big a hole has been chipped away at. If, you, if you're not constantly kind of nurturing it and, and, and monitoring it in a way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I have these sort of big moments in my life where um, I stop and I go, what the hell am I doing? Like, honestly, what am I doing? It's incredibly selfish. That's that's one thing that I'll always be very grateful for and respectful of Wiggy is that he has always valued my career on the same terms as his own. So there's always been that parity. Like he, from, from the moment, like when we met, he was... Um, well, we were both skin. I mean, we didn't have any money, and and I, but I saw a sort of determination and work ethic in him that I knew that he'd do well in life. Yeah, and he and he's doing brilliantly. But he's never once said, "Well, I'm doing this, so you've got to stay home." He's always gone right. Let's make this work. We've talked it through, and then we've made it work. And um, sometimes I have wobbles, and I say. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. And he go, no, you absolutely can. And you will. And let's just do it. You know, I'm behind you. So um, I think that, I think that is, I think that kind of, I suppose, yeah, parity is the only word I can call it. It's, it's just, it's an acceptance and understanding that you both matter. And that is so important to show the kids as well. I think um, Wiggy and I are so similar. When you just said that, you can and you will. We had this crazy moment where um, <laughs> we were in, <laughs> we were in California. Um, a couple of years ago, Ben and I, and we were on our surrogacy journey with Fox and we were with our surrogate oh, yeah. in the hospital. And there was this moment where, oh, it's taken a long, long, long time for Fox to come into the world. And there was this one moment where Ben was hiding behind the curtain and I was with, with our surrogate as she was about to give birth to our child. And literally there's this one moment where Ben can just hear me. She's going, I can't do it. I can't do it. And Ben said, I just heard this booming voice from out of nowhere, which is obviously like little, little you going, you can and you will. And then in the next push, she did. <laughs> that was you. <laughs> I was wetting myself laughing, just thinking, of 
course, it's like this inner sort of determination. It will happen. It will yeah, happen. But Come Georgie, on. That, sum, that sums you up. Like you have always had such a can-do attitude and you've always been so resourceful. Like mm. whatever life has thrown at you, and I don't know if that's our schooling mm. or our parenting or probably a combination of both. But yes, there is no substitute for hard work and you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. And yes, we've, de- we've certainly had privileged lives and we've been given opportunities that a lot haven't. Um, but I hope that one thing that we have taught our kids is that um, if you get out there and work hard enough, you can achieve anything. I don't take anything for granted. Like, honestly, when I... Um, when I think about some of my mum's clients and the miserable lives that they have and just just surviving is a, is a massive challenge. So I know that we've been very lucky, but I think that's probably why I say yes to everything. I'm so scared of, <laughs> of not doing, achieving something every day of my bloody yeah. life that I say yes to everything and then I'm just knackered. But, uh, you know, something gets me up the next morning to do it all over again. Um, and it's, have you it's, ever, it's not have hard you ever... work, it's a genuine privilege. Yeah. Well, with the Formula One thing, though, because it is so relentless and it's so full on, have you ever just gone? I mean, I, I did. I went to that place. Where I was like, oh, this is no, this is too much. This is too much for me. I can't make this work moving forward. I couldn't make it work with Ben mm. in my life. That's for sure, because of his 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 gigs. Yeah. Um, but what about what about from your perspective? Have you ever just gone? Oh, this is just too full on. This is too relentless. I can't I can't see me doing this for very much longer. Or has it? always been this sort of thing where you you know they're gonna have to carry you out (laughs) yeah yeah probably um I had a um I had a moment at the beginning of this year actually and I haven't ever sort of publicly mentioned this I mean not that it's huge to anyone else but it was kind of huge for me in the moment I was having quite a stressful time um you know, in my private life, you know, family stuff. Um, I'd never told everyone, anyone that, um, that my dad had been diagnosed with dementia and he has been getting progressively worse, which is just horrible to see. But there was also lots of quite stressful things going on with myself and with our careers and all sorts of stuff was going on. And I was getting more and more stressed and Wiggy could see it in me. Um, I think also I'd taken on Flackstock, which is this, um, uh, festival that I'd created in memory of our friend Caroline Flack. Um, and I'd taken a bit of a, a look into the world of mental health. Um, mm. And I'd realized that there, you know, I mean, we could talk for an hour on that, that the things that I've learned about mental health and this giant epidemic that we're sort of plunging into, um, I, I find it astonishing the crisis that we're in in this country, well, globally as well, in terms of. Uh, mental health. And I realized actually I was neglecting my own because I was trying to do too much all the time. I was yeah. trying to be there for everyone. And and then um, I ended up in hospital and they'd found these um, weird sort of nodules in my stomach, my bladder, bowel, intestine. I And obviously I thought, oh my God, it's cancer. Um, they removed nine of them and they sent them off for testing. And they were like, it's not cancer, which obviously was a massive relief because you have like two weeks where you think, shit, that's it. I'm dying. And you have this moment where you think I have to survive for my children. That is all that matters. Um, and then I was in the hospital. No, sorry. I, I was allowed to come home. And so this is before I knew the results of the tests. Um, and Wiggy had taken Wilf 
to the doctors because he'd had backache and um um <laughs> it feels so weird saying it now because it's it's it obviously was really emotional yeah but i know wolf had a scan and the um the doctor said he's fractured his back God. And I was still too poorly to go to the consultant with them. So I was doing this on FaceTime and I sort of let out this visceral scream. I was like, what? And um, they said, yeah, he's got a bilateral stress fracture of his L5. And basically what that meant was... How that, the hell um, had he done that then? Well, they they think that what it was was that his body was trying to grow. He was having like a growth spurt, but he was playing so much sport that um, he'd put his lower back under too much pressure. And by sport, I mean, he was, just, he was playing football every day. And um, Wiggy started crying. I mean, I'd, I'd not seen Wiggy cry in 15 years. I saw, I saw him well up once when after... Um, we had Wilf because it was a scary birth, but that's it. I'd seen him cry once in our whole married life. And he just, he was just crying in the middle of this thing. Cause he was like, what the hell does that mean for our boy? And you know, Wilf, like sport is everything to him. Like that's all he ever does. Um, and they basically said no sport basically for a year. You've got to try and stop him God. doing sport for a year. And Wilf's little face. I just remember thinking, Oh Christ, this is, the biggest sort of challenge, really. So I was trying to get better from this stomach surgery and I was trying to support Wilf. And I just thought, what am I doing? I, you know, I can't go off and do another Formula One season. I need to be here for my family. My dad's getting worse with dementia. You feel sort of yeah. crushed sometimes in the middle, don't you? When you've got your, the older generation looking down on you. And I know that yeah. you're in this position with your mum. Um, obviously, Wiggy's parents both had cancer. They both still have cancer now. They're both managing it. And then I felt this pressure from below and suddenly thinking, oh, my God, I, I can't I can't do it. I can't be there for everyone. And um, all I wanted was to make my little boy better because I knew how much playing sport means to him. Yeah, we learned so much about Wilf um, over the last nine months in terms of his resilience um, for an eight-year-old boy. Um he said, okay, well, what can I do? And the, the consultant said, well, you could play table tennis, um, but you can't bend down to pick up the ball. <laughs> so he, we bought him a little miniature table tennis table and he put it in the in, in the um, spare room in our house and he folded it in half. And a bit like Forrest Gump, he taught himself how to play table tennis. He just hit a ball uh, against the other side. And now he set up a league in his school. They've got over a hundred members of this <laughs> table tennis league. And he is phenomenal at table tennis. <laughs> I played him the other day, thrash me. I always thought I was quite good at it. But I just I've loved the way he's adapted. Oh, so yeah, yes, for it's sure. been fucking hard, but he's he's taught himself something. And also, um, uh, he did say to me again, and this goes back to the mental health side of it, it's all sort of interlinked, is that he said to me, the thing is, mummy, um, when I'm angry, I kick a football and that makes mm. me feel better. And now I can't kick a football. So what happens to that anger? Aged eight. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so emotionally intelligent to say something like yeah. that, you know. And I, I welled up at him saying it and I went, I totally get it. I totally get it. Because the first thing Wiggy does when he feels stressed, which is pretty much every day because he's got a lot on his plate, is he goes and trains in the garden like 
six, seven in the morning, and then mentally he can face the day. That's yeah. his that's his therapy, is that he trains. And I realise Wilf is so similar to his dad in that respect. So I said, look, I promise I will find things that you can do. Anyway, he he's starting to try and do a little bit of sport again. But I'm just, and are you nervous? Yeah, I was going to say because so what that nervous. does to you is it just makes yeah. you terrified about what the next bit looks like, or like you say, if he's yeah. in a football match and someone tackles him or something, like you know, what it's just like you say, it's trying desperately not to wrap them up in cotton wool. It's funny. Someone said to me the other day. I mean, that's that's yeah, that's really painful. Nats to go on that journey. And someone said to me the other day about Bellatrix. Do you think you're more sort of? Um, on it with her in terms of just constantly I just say the whole time I spend my life saying to both Bellatrix and Fox be careful be careful it's like yeah. the two words that most often come out of my mouth where they're they're concerned thank god and every time I say it I say stop saying it I try and tell myself to stop saying it so that yeah. I don't create these two completely neurotic panicking children but it's it, someone yeah. said to me the other day do you think it's because they're IVF kids and you wanted them so much that you're sort of like constantly Aww. desperately trying to protect them I, say, I don't know what yeah. it is but you know you do have Maybe. that extra layer of just constantly wanting to wrap them in cotton wool because you know how hard they were to come by. But with Wilf, it's interesting that, that's, isn't it, with that's exercise? That's an interesting point, yeah. No, I was just going to say uh, about that with you, you and you, Bellatrix and Fox, I think I wouldn't worry too much because I think that they'll follow your example more than anything. And you're such mm. a go-getter, like, in, and you work hard and you're constantly curious and exploring. And they will, that sort of... I don't know, that's in their DNA. And that's also, they're, they're seeing it and they're acting out what they're seeing in life with you and Ben. So I wouldn't worry because they don't listen to what we say anyway. So <laughs> but exercise, you, you make that point about Wilf and exercise and Wiggy and exercise. Mm. And I see it so much with Ben and I need to do more exercise. It's that release mm. of those endorphins, which make you feel yeah. so much better. And if you don't do it, you really feel the, the lack of it. And if you do do it, mm. you really feel the benefit of it. And the decisions you make as a result of just doing something a little, whatever it might be mm. every day, make such a big difference, don't they? To your mental health. We talked about mental health briefly and we can talk about that more now. It's yeah. kind of the difference that exercise makes to your mental health, I think is incredible, especially as you get older. Like uh, Astonishing. Um, a quick shout out to Gary Lewin, who you may remember um, was the physio for England and Arsenal. Yeah. And uh, Robbie Keane um, had put me in touch with it because I, I just ra just rang anyone I knew when Wilf had this diagnosis. I was just sobbing. I was feeling like a physically, physically low ebb myself. Um, and I was just you know, thinking about my own mortality, I was just, you know, you just, yeah. you're suddenly questioning everything and you're thinking, what could I have done differently? And Gary Lewin is just the kindest man I've ever met. And I just really needed him at that moment. And he just sort of wrapped his arms around uh, me and Wilf and was just amazing. Uh, he really was. I, m I remember I, I've been taking him up to the Arsenal training ground to get physio, which makes me laugh because he was wearing full Brentford kit for the first appointment. <laughs> I said, well, you might want to change your kits. <laughs> but anyway, Gary said to me, and this is, I think, really important for any of your listeners who've, who've got young kids, is he said, look, it's a basic but really important rule. And it's kind of counterintuitive, but basically children's bodies can only really cope with 
the hours per week commensurate to their age. So if you're seven, yeah. only do seven hours a week, eight, eight hours a week, don't put the body under too much pressure because it's trying to grow. It's already doing so much when they sleep, they grow. And really, Wilf was probably doing double that. Yeah, uh, He's got a touch of the Johnny Wilkinson about him. He would just go into the garden until it was dark, <laughs> kicking and kicking and kicking and kicking. Yeah. I'd be like, Wilf, it's bedtime. He'd be like, no, 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 no. Incredible tenacity and, and determination and concentration but it wasn't good for his body and we didn't know that so like yeah. we'd take him on a Sunday morning to play in the league and then on the Monday he'd play for a school and on the Tuesday he'd play for another club he'd do back-to-back -back games on a Sunday he was playing so much football and it's really when we stripped it right back to one of the things I really hope and we know we're going to have to manage this probably for the rest of his life now but one of the things that we've learned and hopefully he's learned is to listen to his body and look after mm. his body. And unfortunately, he's had to learn it a lot younger than we wanted. I mean, Gary hadn't seen any, he'd, he'd seen loads of footballers with, with this injury, but mostly around puberty age. Um, he'd never seen it as someone as young as seven. Um, so that was strange. And, you know, people have asked me, is it about bone density? No, it's, 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 it's genetic. I've always struggled with lower back pains and I've had to manage them. And so has Wiggy. And actually... Other kids may have this problem, but they haven't pushed their body to the extent that Wilfie had because he played too much sports. So you might have a weakness there, but not know about it because you're not playing ridiculous amounts of sport. But in terms of sport for mental health, I've had to really manage his mental health as much as his physical in this whole process because you know, kids want to run. They just they just yeah. want to play sport and they want to feel free and Every five minutes, I'll be like, no, 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 Wilfie, don't do that. You know, the kids want to go and jump on a trampoline. That's the worst thing for his back. You know, anything with impact. And it's, you know, I've I've always been like the fun police for him over the last nine months, which is which is horrible. And so, and he just wants to run, run and run yeah. and run and run and run. He loves cross country, all of that stuff. Um, so that's been hard. But I think, back to your earlier point about it helping with mental health, you you just got to find the thing that works for you. And I remember when Caroline died, I we were plunged straight into lockdown and I couldn't get my head around the fact that one of my mates had committed suicide. Uh, I just, I couldn't understand it. Couldn't, hated myself for not seeing, uh, you know, more of the warning signs. When I look back over my messages, there were red flags, but of course you don't think it at the time. You think, no, well, she, you know what she's like, life and soul of the party, you wanted to be around her. She had such great energy, so much fun, always laughing. Um, but yes, I've, I beat myself up about it even now. At the time when we plunged into lockdown and I couldn't come and see people like you, couldn't go and see people like Kirsty and other of Flacky's mates, um, I found it really, really hard. And I'll never forget this one night. I, I seem to remember, I don't know where, I heard it on a podcast. I think it might have been James Haskell's podcast just go and do some burpees. So I never forget, I went out into the, the garden and it was absolutely drilling down with rain. And I did a hundred burpees in the garden and suddenly I had some clarity and I, d I can't explain it, but I came back in the house and I suddenly had stopped crying continually. I kept trying to hide the fact I was crying so much about Caroline from my kids. And yeah. I remember talking to someone, they said, it's fine. Let them see you cry. It's actually very important for them to see you cry for various reasons. One, that they know crying's okay and it's quite healthy to cry. Secondly, they see you gather yourself and 
push on through and that they see you therefore as a bit of a, a superhero that you're able to do that. And thirdly, they comfort you and with their comfort, you stop crying. So you empower them in that moment. It was actually Julia Samuel who told me that therapist who helped me when Caroline died. And so the combination of that and exercise is what got me through it. And, and what's come as a result of all of that um, and out of the tragedy of, of Flack dying is this amazing Flack stock that you've created with, is, is with Dawna Porter, isn't it? The two of you have sort of yeah. done it together. I mean, that, like yeah. you say, I mean, you just don't ever say no to anything. So it's literally, what's the next challenge? What's the next thing? What's the next thing I can do? And, and actually it comes from the best place because all you want to do is help and all you want to do is, you know, try and solve the world's problems. And I know this about you. So, so with that in mind though, I mean, what has that given you? Because we obviously, Flack has gone, um, but she has this legacy now. And it's this legacy mm. piece about mental health. I mean, how have you been able to fill that void? It's impossible, but how have you been able to counteract yeah. it slightly? Yeah, I mean, I definitely haven't filled the void. Um, but I remember Julia Samuel saying to me, one of the best things you can do now, because I was like, what can I do? I feel like I've failed in, in many respects with her. What can I do? And she said, well, one of the really important things you can do is you can keep in constant contact with her mum because all the noise will fade and then she'll feel very alone that she's lost a daughter. And the same with Jodie, her twin sister. And then I thought about this idea of the festival and I thought, well, why not? Why can't we do it? Because we never had a memorial for her because of COVID. And then I reached out, as you say, to Dawn, um, to Anna Blue, um, Sarah Harris, well, Tykiff now, but Harris uh, is her maiden name, TV producers. I'll tell you one thing that Caroline was brilliant at. She was a great people collector and she had all sorts of interesting friends, all with different talents. Um, and wherever I've gone to reach out for support with this, the doors opened. It's just blown wide open because people loved her. And she has, you know, like there'll be a music producer that wants to support. There'll be a booker, um, Liz, who wanted to help book the music acts. And people were just coming forward and like offering other bits. So it's been incredibly um, therapeutic. It's been a sort of creative outlet for a lot of us. It's been a way of mourning her. Um, but it's also been quite... Um, well, it's been a massively steep learning curve for me, but it's also been quite intimidating, if I'm honest, mm. because suddenly I have taken a peek into this this whole world of mental health. And um, I'm trying to support someone else close to me at the moment, and I'm just desperate for them not to go the same way that Caroline did. And I'm realising just how bleak it is out there in terms of getting support. One in six working adults um, are on waiting lists at the moment for mental health support in the NHS, one in six. I mean, that is astonishing. And the waiting time for that support is nine months. Wow. Well, I'm sorry, but there's going to be That's a lot of suicide in that time. Yeah. It's too late. And what we're finding, and this is this, this is just from our work in Flagstock, because we've had so many incredible people, both in terms of mental health professionals, but also people struggling with their mental health have come to us and said, the system's broken and something has to be done. Um, and interestingly, um, people come up to me the whole time and go, oh, you know, um, I'd love to support Flaxdot because I've lost a brother, a sister, you know, my wife lost her best friend. They'll always be, someone's, someone's got a story. And, um, what I think we need to do, we really need to push with this is, um, the regulations around the quality 
of of care has to be improved because you know how we have like an official regulatory body the GMC with with in the medical sector there is nothing yeah. like that for mental health yeah. you've got a lot of rogue professionals in inverted commas offering the help so you know often misdiagnosing the problem and making the problem worse and so there has to be an adherence to clinical standards that we see across the board in other parts of medicine but i think the thing that's really dawned on me as well with this other person who's very close to us is that, you know, it sounds an obvious thing to say, but if they've got a broken arm, we go and put it in a plaster and we, yeah. we fix it. You can't see this problem. And by the way, it takes constant and long-term maintenance and you have to be in it for the long game. And and that's, I think, the exhausting bit, that there is a massive ripple effect on everyone around in terms of mental health. And just because there's an outward smile doesn't mean it's fixed. Often that's actually the scariest point you get to, because once they're smiling again, it's almost like they're at peace and they've made their decision. That can often be the time when you need to be on red yeah. alert. But I feel, I feel, yeah, sorry. It's, it's No, it's true. I mean, we had the most awful thing happen at Bellatrix's last school back in... Um, Oh, uh, yeah. at the end of term oh, um so beginning of july time um and it was just appalling you know it was the school in wimbledon which was affected by the car that went through the through the fence and oh, horrific. horrific two 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 girls like died and there were other injuries and it was obviously the ripple effect of it was really hugely felt um and one of the things that was especially felt was that the people in the immediate aftermath did actually seek quite a lot of help and were given also mm. a lot of help in order to, you know, mend mentally from what they had seen, which obviously you can't unsee. Um, but then there were probably a ton of people outside of that immediate circle who probably didn't seek help or weren't necessarily offered mm. it because they weren't in the immediate aftermath of, of what was going on or they weren't privy to that, you know, mm. the, the event itself, but definitely felt the effects of it. And it's those people that you also worry about. I mean, for, for, for about four weeks afterwards, whenever Bellatrix heard a siren, she would be really visibly shaken by it and it you, you don't think of that in the in the first moments afterwards because you think oh, thank god we've just got through it and she's not hurt and she's unscathed mm. and we haven't been caught up in it um in that really direct way but actually the the other bits come out later and you've just got to keep an eye on it you know especially with kids you've 100%. just got to keep a little eye on it because PTSD. it doesn't always show yeah. itself right then and there it could be months later that these kids start saying things that make you think where's that come from and then you yeah. of course you remember that, that there is a natural place of you know the source is is you know the, the incident georgie you're spot on ptsd is something that you have to address straight away and the problem is is that a lot of people yeah, they think they're going to be fine and they're going to be okay. But look, you know, we're all human and we're all going to suffer at various points. And I think this is the thing we we just have to get certain things as standard within every company. I mean, if you think about it, I, I was I remember first addressing it with uh, Red Bull. So you remember when Red Bull got accused of the uh, breaching the cost cap last year? Yeah. And yeah. Um, I was chatting to Amanda Newey, Adrian Newey's wife, and she was saying that kids in the playground were getting bullied because they were being told that their daddies were cheats. Wow. And she said the, the ripple effect of this was huge. And they were coming home saying that, you know, daddy, if you cheated or whatever. And um, 
what we've got to recognise is that it's a basic human right to have decent mental health support. Um, it's something ne nearly 80% of absenteeism is because of poor mental health. So if you actually think about it, if you're investing to support those within your team and in, within your company, you're going to get better performance out of them anyway. Um, and it's the same with Formula One. It is, you've got to invest in your team from a mental health perspective, because with 24 races on the calendar, it is too much. It's like, it's too much for anyone to, to cope with. And we did a talk at, um, at Red Bull, myself and Ruby Wax, because Ruby Wax has obviously had a, a very difficult history of mental health problems. And she was, she was, she was amazing, but she was like, you know, it is a massive, massive problem in this country. And we have to get on top of it because it, it's, um, People say we're on the brink of an epidemic. I think we're deep into the epidemic, honestly. Yeah. Just anecdotally, what I've heard, what I've seen, so many positive things have come from Flaxstock, but it almost feels like we've peeled a plaster off a massive sore and we now have a duty of care to do something about cleaning up that sore um, for Caroline's legacy, but also because um, we've started a festival which is addressing those problems. And by the way, it's still the only mental health festival in the whole of Europe. No one else is doing it. And we realise how much of a need there is for it. But, you know, when people come up to me at the festival and they say, oh, I've been having suicidal thoughts, I just feel, oh, my God, I'm not. I'm not professionally equipped. I don't have the answers that you need. And that's a lot um, on you as well. You. That is a lot on you. And I know you're the type of person yeah, that's the problem you, to take yeah. that away with you. And to, to well, you don't sleep yeah. on it because you don't sleep, but to take it away and definitely <laughs> think on it. Yeah. I mean, that is that is yeah, something yeah, you're yeah. not going to leave behind, right? You can't leave that behind. No, and you can't. And that's been one of our main motivators to do it again. We're doing again it again, again next year. But one thing, one thing I am really excited about and proud of are the amount of people that have offered to come on the journey with us. Big companies, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Mercedes, they all want a part of this because they say not only does it matter internally, but also externally, we want to be the company that does the right thing by our employees, but also for the bigger picture. Um, and again, I come back to Lewis. He, he, he puts so much emphasis on mental health. Uh, Mind, one of our charities that benefit from Flaxstock, is the charity partner for Mercedes now and going forward and they're, they're fully in they're so invested in it now if we get the support of these big companies um i know we can do great things but i just do on a personal level i do have to delegate a bit more because i remember yeah. walking through the festival and um i was holding hands with my mum had willow and i was holding wilfie's hand and we were just walking through the festival together and people kept sort of tugging and tapping and you know one asking questions and stuff and totally to be expected but I mean I think maybe it overwhelmed me slightly because I was a bit like oh my god you know and then Wilfie was pulling my my top and and I said what is it and he just burst into tears and he very very rarely does that and I said what is it so I took him to one side he said why does everyone need to talk to you you're my mummy and oh. I said oh my god and I realized in that moment I can't be Everyone's. trying to do it all I need to delegate a bit more and I don't have the answers. I want to be able to support, but I don't. So what I'm trying to do now is is get more and more people on the committee and professionals that know what they're talking about. But every professional that I have spoken to, honestly, Georgie, has frightened me to how much work there needs to be done. I just it it, it there is there is just a mammoth task ahead. Even if you have the money to 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 pay for treatment, and by the way, it's 
astronomically expensive. So very few people do. But even with that, it's a very, very long process for someone who's very poorly to get well again. And, you know, Flacky was, there was just so many things for her that went wrong. And it was catastrophic. And she did calamitize things in her own mind. But I don't know many people that wouldn't have been affected by what actually happened to her. And she took the way out that she thought was the only option for her, which is just brutal. It's a privilege and it's an opportunity for us to build Flaxstock into something really special and lasting. And I want Flaxstock to continue long after we've all gone. You know, I want this to be something that our kids' kids talk about and they say, oh, yeah, that's where the coming together of hearts and minds, music, comedy, dance, everything that makes us feel joyous and makes us feel alive. Um, and, and just a safe space for people to talk and be together and cry if you need to, laugh um, and and just be yourself without any judgment. Performance tips for how you can perform better every day. How can a regular person perform better in life every day? What's one thing they could do? Oh, well, what I try to do is have like a little mini routine in the morning and become a little bit fixated on this, but I think it's a really good way to sort of get the old engines revving. Wiggy and Wilf are terrible morning people. They don't wake up for like half an hour. Willow and I are like, morning. <laughs> we like those really irritating people first thing in the morning. <laughs> My brother's even worse because he did morning breakfast radio for like 20 years. He is so annoying in the morning because he's just so <laughs> hyper. And I'm probably somewhere between Sam and Wiggy. Um <laughs> But what I try to do is little mini routine. And in that small way, um, you feel that you've ticked a few boxes for yourself. So I always have a green tea when I wake up. That gives me a little bit of caffeine, not too much. Um, drink loads of water and a bit of exercise. If I can, I'll do a little bit of stretching. I get the kids to do a bit of yoga with me in, in the living room. Like, Wolf's like, no way. Willow's like, oh, yes, I'm in. Um, so... Try and do a bit of that. I definitely, I do all of the above as well when I'm at a racetrack, whenever I'm away for a race weekend. So I'll put on a podcast, I'll do some yoga in the hotel room. You, you actually don't need much room at all to do exercise. So you can do, Wiggy assures me that burpees is like the most complete exercise and it takes up the least amount of room. So you can do like 20 burpees and then a load of yoga. And I've got one little video that I just watch on repeat and I do that in the hotel room. And then I just feel like blood is flowing and movement is so important and you're hydrated. So you've glugged a load of water, done your green shake um, and your green tea, and then I'm buzzing. <laughs> only you can Probably make really burpees. Well. Only you, yeah, only you can make burpees sound like a positive thing. Nobody else likes them, <gasps> just you. Um, oh, okay. Wiggy does. Trust me. He's <laughs> so ridiculous. Let's do let's do our deep dive into um, this traveling thing because it's such oh, yeah. a massive part of your world. I mean, you're constantly on a plane. I worked out when I was doing Formula One, I think we spent probably six months in the air and on flights and <gasps> in hotel rooms. So, I mean, that it is a crazy, crazy amount of time that you're spending in that environment. So how do you make it best work for you? And how do you get off the other end of a really long haul flight, not feeling completely shattered and rubbish and actually able to kind of do the job that you can do? Well, the short answer is there isn't a short answer. 
I think everybody has to listen to their own bodies. I think everybody has to adjust and do what works for them. I mean, Karun Chandok has all sorts of great advice on how to beat jet lag. But the truth is, for me, I sleep when my body needs it because I have such interrupted sleep as it is. I'm mm. not, you know, probably that's where I'm going wrong. But I do listen to my body and I will just take the opportunity to kick wherever I can. I'm unbelievable at having a power nap. So right now, if you challenge me to, <laughs> nothing to do with your chat, I could close my eyes and fall asleep. I could. I could do like five minutes and I'll feel incredible after it. Um, but that's probably because I wake up five times in the night. Um, I think hydration is massively important. Um, all the drivers say that a lot of the drivers won't eat plain food because there's too much salt in it mm. and they'll bring their own food onto the plane or they won't eat anything on the plane but they'll all keep really hydrated so um recently when i traveled to japan and it was basically over my birthday and i missed my whole birthday and i really milked this and the old violins because i took off before my birthday started <laughs> i landed after it had finished <laughs> <laughs> I said to Damon, I was with Damon and Ant, two rubbish drinkers. And I said, you've got to drink with me for the whole flight. And they were like, absolutely not. So I was like, no, no, no. That's when, that's when you really missed, that's when you really missed your old school pal, isn't it? That was the moment where you really missed that's your old school That's when I missed pal. you the most, GT. I missed you the most. Um, and actually, I could have done with lasers there as well at the time, because at least you'd have had a glass of red with me. But um Anyway, the truth is that alcohol is the worst thing you can do on a flight because mm. you get, I mean, I don't know about you, but do you remember how emotional we used to get watching yeah. films? Something yeah. to do with the altitude. You'd like start sobbing. <laughs> I remember meeting uh, Johnny Herbert for the very first time on a flight to Australia for the first race of the year. <laughs> and I sobbed for the whole flight. And he was thinking, who's this nutter next to me? She's a complete emotional wreck. And I'd just been watching, uh, I think it was like, 40-year-old virgin. I mean, it wasn't even a sad film. <laughs> there was that moment where Classic we were on a Malaysia. I remember us getting a, a, a charter flight from Australia to Malaysia and you looked around the cabin and it was kind of like the, the best of Formula One. It was like, like you said, sort of Damon yeah. there and Johnny Herbert there and then Martin Whitmarsh there and Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg. And you're like, oh my God, like you're surrounded by, like you say, they must choose very wisely what their film choices are so that they do not reveal their emotions in front of the rest of the traveling circus. That's true. I remember seeing Adrian Souter watching a Disney movie. I was like, oh, I've learned all I need to know about you now. I was like, that's really cute. And his girlfriend at the time was watching some like war film. And I was like, wow, this is a real insight into their personalities. But you're right. You do look around the plane and you think, Oh my God, I'm not sure I'd even get a mention if this plane went down because there's so many more important people than me on this flight. <laughs> so go, true. Oh, yeah. well, I, knew we'd, I knew we'd, yeah. I knew we'd deviate the minute we got onto this. But, um, so in terms Sorry. of your, but in ter <laughs> okay, we've established that you've got a rubbish sleep pattern and you need better sleep hygiene in your life. Yeah. And we know, we know that that's true. Um, but in terms of listening to your body clock, do you? Do you pay attention to what it needs and when it needs it? Because you've always been good with diet and exercise. I'm, I'm lucky in that Wiggy is like the sugar police. I mean, like he literally banned sugar in this house. I think seeing his parents go through such an incredibly difficult journey with cancer that mm. he's, he's educated himself and us on the importance of a healthy diet. And so that's been one thing, like he's a real nag, but he makes us eat healthily. Um, and 
he's good therefore in terms of exercise he's on my case I can never train with him he does my head in like you go down to do something he'll go no rep no rep and I go just get out of my grill <laughs> I'm working really hard here don't tell me that I didn't crease my hips enough with that squat go away yeah um but it's um it's imp- it's important, I think, to have an ally in that respect. If, if if you're living with someone who's drinking and smoking every day, the chances are you're going to, you know, you can't beat them, join them. But if somebody, on the other hand, is saying, right, let's not have any alcohol during the week, let's not um, eat anything um, that's particularly bad for you, and let's just encourage our kids to have a healthy diet, then that's great. We've got this new app, you've got to get it, Georgie, called Yucca, Y-U-K-A, okay. or Yucca, Yucca, Yucca. Anyway, a load of doctors devised this app and you basically scan the barcode of the product that you're buying and it will tell you the content of it in really simple form and it will rate it out of 100. So you'll be really surprised the stuff that isn't as good for you as you think it is and vice versa. So what it will also do is if it gives it a low score, it will tell you similar alternatives that are much better for you. So what I say to the kids now is it takes the onus off me. I say to them, right, let's do what Yuka says. So Yuka decides basically. So they'll go, can we have this? Can we have this? And I'll scan it and they'll go, soz. Yuka says, uh-uh. But then I'll find alternatives that's still tasty and, and works. That's like the, that's like the 2023 version of those bracelets that used to say, what would Jesus do? <laughs> what would Yuka do? What would Wiggy say? Oh, my God. Uh, that's a good it's, way of doing um, it, though, right? Because you're engaging them in the process and you're trying to make them think yeah. about it in a way which that they're not thinking that they're thinking about it. Exactly. And they, you know, they're all into Prime and they'll go, oh, you know, mm. Prime, so good for you. And I go, well, let's just have a look at that, shall we? <laughs> and we'll scan it. It's brilliant. It tells you straight away and it's a free app. Brilliant. Okay. So that's a good way of doing it. And so in terms of your, if you're starting your day and you've just done a flight, like you say, to Japan or somewhere like that, and you're, you know, about to go live um, uh, on TV um, at one of the Grand Prix, how do you, how do you get through? How do you do the best performance that you possibly can on the most limited amount of resource that you've got in your system? I think that, you, you you kind of just knuckle down and get on with it. A little bit of the old toughen up stuff. Grit. Um, yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing to push yourself out of your comfort zone, even if you are feeling a bit crap. I think that actually that's something I definitely want to teach Wilf and Willow is that sometimes you just have to get on with it. Even if you're feeling rubbish, just push through that, um, push through that level of comfort and know that things won't come easily in life. And that's okay. Um, but I do think listen to your body and I do think talk to your mates. Um, it's difficult because you don't want to always be feeling like you're divulging too much to your teammates. You always want to put on a certain front that you're feeling okay, but there's always mates on the team. And actually that's one thing I really did miss when you left is that you were my go-to person to talk to. And you, you do sometimes feel a little bit, um, isolated maybe um and there's been a couple more girls have joined the team lately Naomi Schiff Bernie Collins and I feel like there is a more uh, of a sense of 
You, you do need a couple of mates around you. And I think that's really important. And it's no weakness to say, do you know what? I'm struggling. And actually after Flaxstock, I really did struggle. I went to Belgium straight away after it. And I had a massive cry to Naomi. And she opened up a bit to me about her home life. And we just, we bonded in that moment. And it really helped us both. And I, I don't think there's any shame in that. I think it, actually it's crucial survival mechanism. Yeah, girls are normally so much better at doing that than guys, aren't they, um, by and large? Yeah. But we're seeing much more that that's becoming a thing that guys feel like they can share in that way. Um, a few kind of choice people coming out and talking about their mental health has made such a big difference to the bigger population of men feeling like they actually can share a bit more. I mean, never in a million years yeah. would, you know, Ben, who is someone that's never sort of turned to a psychologist or anybody like that to talk through anything is now even starting to realize that not just him but definitely different people on the team require different types of support systems yeah, and they need and they definitely. need different backups it's a bit like it's a bit like when you watch that Beckham documentary and you see you know Alex Ferguson put his arm around some and then you know told others to get on with it it's like what does a great yeah. manager do um, you know, in those mm. moments where some people really need a little bit of love and care and other people need to be told. So it is it is just about knowing, isn't it, where, you know, where your teammates sit on that spectrum? Definitely. And I think actually all credit to, to Billy, our, our boss in F1, is that I think years ago he thought the stick approach was the thing for everyone across the board. And he has got to know me better and knows that I need a carrot. I need an arm around me. I don't need to be bollocks for something. I just need someone to go, it's all right, I've got your back. And 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 he's grown and as a result, you know, he's he's a different person now and he's he's a leader in our team. And I think honestly that's that's been that's been really important on a personal level for me. But I need to learn from that as well. And I need to feel that with my kids, you know, I feel like I'm always nagging them about their homework. Sometimes you just need to put your arm around and go, okay, why don't you want to do your homework? And don't say it's because <laughs> you want to play on your switch. <laughs> yeah. But have just, you seen their homework you know, these days? Have you seen what they're being asked to do? It's insane. Hell. It's like, well, I wouldn't want to be doing Georgie, their homework anyway. I, stand a chance. I know, right. I know. <laughs> Thank God but we're it's through that. Because they're very, very, well, that, absolutely. And I think that um, you do need, to be a bit of a psychologist when you're a, when you're a parent. Mm. And actually what I've come to realize is my two kids are very, very different and they respond very differently to different things, you know, to your approach as a mum has to be tailored towards the child. You can't just assume. Yeah. And it's the same in business. It's the same in formula one. It's the same in sailing. It's the same in, in life generally, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is really, really true. Nat, thanks. It's been amazing. It's been really nice to catch up. Oh. Actually, we've had a we've had a really good catch up. I knew this would go on. I knew well, we'd like program ourselves well, in for an hour and end up doing two. <laughs> oh, it, Georgie, honestly, I love you so much. I always say to Wiggy that um, you're one of those mates that it doesn't matter if I don't see you for three months or three years. It it always feels the same when we reconnect. 